0: Well, if you ever want to make people feel guilty, ask them how their prayer life's going. It's the character of it, isn't it? That which is actually one of the great joys and delights of life can easily become one of the great guilts and shames of our lives, which is an absurdity. I noticed that John Stott uh, said that uh, when he was asked about what he would do differently in his great long life of ministry, he said, I'd do less and pray more. Uh, I think almost everybody I know would say, yes, that's what I should do. That's, that's, that's just part of it, isn't it? So- Um, There was a very uh, funny old clergyman here in the days when Hugh Goff was the Archbishop and Hugh Goff was very big into consulting management systems and he would get the clergy together and say, now what what do we see are the problems of the diocese? What are the problems that we need to work on? And this dear old man Bill would always say, he had a stutter, which is an unusual thing for a clergyman, he'd always say the problem is the prayerlessness of the clergy. And uh, no one actually knew what to do with that. Uh, We know what to do if we need more training in how to run uh, budgets and how to build buildings and how to... But the prayer lessons of the clergy is just one of those things that you don't want said, but of course is the problem. I'm I'm preaching on Amos at the moment. I'm up to Amos chapter 7, and I was struck with this week's uh, passage, Amos 6 and 7, that I'm working on. This is what the Lord God showed me. And behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And then I said, oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. The Lord relented concerning this also shall not be, said the Lord God. It's one of the characteristics of of the prophet, which we don't necessarily think of, but it's true of the pastor, It should be true of you, and uh, I trust it is, especially after the earlier study, that the prophet loves the people he ministers to. You've got to love people, especially if you're announcing them, especially if you're declaring their need to repent, and especially if you're telling them of the judgment that's coming upon them. The prophet of doom must be a prophet of love. Otherwise he will rejoice in the doom instead of being horrified by what is happening to people. I remember the Apostle Paul, who was so terribly persecuted by his fellow countrymen, but yet he would gladly have given his life if they could have been saved. You've got to love the people that you're denouncing. And if you do love them, then when you see, as he was shown, the judgment that was coming upon them, then you need to pray for them. You will pray for them. You can't help but pray for them so he sees what is about to happen to Israel and he prays, earnest, desperate prayers. oh Lord please God please forgive, how can Jacob stand, he's so small and oh Lord God please cease, how can Jacob stand, he's so small. And what we see in this passage is one of those theological conundrums for some people but really is what is a terrific joy for us that is the God relents. God says it will not happen. That is, God listens to prayer and he changes what is going to happen as a result of his prayers. Now that's an extraordinary thing. I know it raises all kinds of theological issues about his sovereignty, about his plan, about his changelessness of character, but you can't avoid the text in answering those theological issues. God was going to, and as a result of Amos praying, he is not going to. That is, prayer doesn't just change the person who prays. Prayer changes life itself. Because God responds to us in prayer. Prayer changes things. James chapter 4. You don't have because you don't ask. Ask and you will receive. What an incredible encouragement to to do this childishly simple thing, to ask, why am I running around like a mad rabbit all the time instead of sitting down and saying, God please can you do this? Of course in praying that doesn't mean therefore I don't go and do things but those of us who are activists by personalities those of us who are fix-it men, we run around like chooks without a head on sometimes when really we should be asking God to be doing things much more than we are because God is more willing to give than we are to ask. But he doesn't always give unless we ask and if we do ask he changes things. Now in part because of our theology of the sovereignty of God we have misunderstood the interaction between our prayers and God giving. It's, it's a misunderstanding in practice. That is, someone comes to you in the congregation and says you know, I've been diagnosed with cancer. What are you going to pray? As I think back in my life and as I've heard other people pray, the prayer is, you know, oh God, we don't know why you are giving us this, But please, we pray for healing and Lord, we pray for contentment that you would help us to learn how to live with whatever it is that you have given to us. Theologically true, pastorally disastrous and shows that you don't love the person as yourself because that's not what you would pray for yourself. You get that, you'll pray one thing and only one thing, please God, heal me that's what you'll pray and you might pray it two or three times you might pray it every five minutes that's what you want and God wants you to tell him what you want but we want to express it theologically rightly now I'm going to go down to the importance of expressing theologically correctly in a few moments time in fact I'm going to go on and on about it but part of right theology is asking for healing asking for what you want that is right theology, you don't have to say everything every time to say something that is true. Now I did a little doodle on this some years ago, which I think I've shown you before, and I'll go fairly quickly through because I most have shown it to you before, but it runs like this in a series of steps. Number Step number one is God's power, that is God is all sovereign. Step number two is as a result of his power, he can change things and also we learn to be content. Both those things are true. Because God is sovereign, I need to be content. Because God is sovereign, He can change things. And both those things are taught in the Bible and so the whole image then of that is a correct thing. That box at the top, that line box, shows what is theologically accurate. However, some people only have the change element and so they push the claim-it-name-it and name it people that God can change things, God must change things, God will heal me, God must heal me. All I've got to do is say, God, heal, and I am healed. And they're the name it and claim it, and that's theologically disastrous. It's untrue, and it ruins people. And indeed, in the end, it becomes, next one, Uh, no, move to the other side. Other people only believe in contentment. God doesn't change anything. You find this in the books of prayer by Barclay, for example. He changes you, but he doesn't change the world. He can't do that. He can't suspend the natural order that has been created. And so we've got to learn contentment. And they've pushed contentment to contentment only. Now, the claim it and name it people hear the Bible's teaching on contentment and always think that we believe in contentment only. The contentment only people... uh, Sorry, I still keep going. the next one. I'll see where this box goes. Keep going. Go to the next one. Go to the next one. Thank you. So that is, the name it and claim it people, let's be a little clear about it, the extreme charismatics, hear the Bible being taught. They hear us speaking about contentment. They think we only believe in contentment because we're really unbelievers. Because frankly, the people who only believe in contentment are unbelievers. That's... That's the problem. That is, liberal theology is just a cover for atheism and in due time it always winds up there. Now the contentment only people, they hear the Bible, next one please, they hear the Bible about change and they hear us as being name it and claim it people next one and so therefore they actually hear us as being superstitious or magicians. So the liberals hear us praying for change and think you're, you're magic people, you're superstitious people. God can't change anything. The charismatics hear us praying for contentment and they say it's because you don't actually believe God will change. You've got to pray for both contentment and change, but you don't have to pray for both every time. There's a time to pray for contentment. There's a time to pray for change. And when I'm sick, I want change. In due time, I might need to learn to pray for contentment with what God has given me. But initially, first thing I want, as soon as the symptoms appear, I want change. And you will too, in whatever it is. And so we're going to learn how to pray knowing that God does and can change the world. So Amos doesn't pray for contentment. He prays for mercy, that forgiveness would come to the land that they wouldn't have to suffer, this incredible plague that was coming upon them. That is, prayer is a great expression of theology. Indeed, theology and prayer go together. As you pray, expresses your theology. Now, this is going to become very important in a moment when I start talking about you as leaders of God's people. Because as you lead them in prayer you will be teaching them theology. Because what you believe about God is seen and heard in how you speak to him. So it's really important. Some years ago I produced this little book, Prayer and the Voice of God, came out of a series of sermons. Uh, Modesty prevents me from telling you how brilliant those sermons were. But one of the long-time real prayers in this congregation said at the end of the series, Philip, that was a great series on prayer. I really learned so much, but you know what? There's no anyone in this cathedral that's going to pray more as a result of hearing those sermons. And she was right. It's not just the theology, it's how you put the theology into practice that teaches people to do. However, get some good theology on the subject of prayer. Prayer of the Voice of God, there is a bookshop over there, it is available. When we pray, we pray because we believe in a personal God. I'm going to go through some of this relatively quickly on the grounds that I trust you believe it already and know it and think it. I'm just reminding you. And our relationship with God is through word. That is, you were raised, weren't you, with uh, Star Wars? Is that right? That was your kind of uh, upbringing? Or are you beyond Star Wars? They were old reruns by the time you got there. Um, The force be with you, Luke, is a theology of impersonal God. We don't have an impersonal God, we have a relational God who speaks and who listens. And so our way of relating to him is by talking to him. And so when you look at prayer, we relate through word and in particular, when we relate through word, we relate by asking and with thanksgiving. Now there's half a dozen different Greek and Hebrew words for prayer. Every one of them means asking. Some people feel that asking God all the time is kind of less than less than uh, worthwhile less than worthy it's it's you know I go to God with a shopping list it sounds like God's Coles or Woolworths and for some people God is Coles or Woolworths but no our God wants to talk to us through his word and he wants us to talk to him through prayer and in particular he wants us to ask him because every time I ask him for something I am honoring him please help me find a car parking spot shows that I believe that God is sovereign in control of everything down to car parking and he loves me enough to be concerned to get me to be able to park my car this time. It honours God to ask God for anything. However when you ask God you should always ask God with thanksgiving and thanksgiving is not prayer. So, if you define prayer as talking to God well then Whenever you talk to God, whether you're asking or whether you're thanking, it's all prayer. But prayer, the words prayer, means asking. And that's why consistently in the scriptures you'll see that you're commanded to ask God with thanksgiving. Because thanksgiving's not asking. It's it's thanksgiving uh, that you're involved in. So you pray with thanksgiving. But that you can see it about words. When Jesus in Luke 11 is asked by his disciples to teach them how to pray, as John taught his disciples how to pray, Jesus teaches them what to say. He doesn't teach them, kneel down, lift your hands, raise them this way, put one that way, concentrate, look inside your navel, put your head in there. He doesn't say, calm down, See, he doesn't say you're going to meditate, lie on the ground, get on the bed of nails. All the kinds of how to pray things in books he never says because those things are all irrelevant to the end. what you've got to do when you pray is talk to God you've got to speak to God in particular you need to ask him certain things when we approach God in prayer then the personal God we're approaching is our father and we need to approach him as father many of the discussions on prayer such as in Luke 11 Discuss prayer in terms of the fatherliness of God. Now, to do that properly, you've got to understand what a father is, which is a worthwhile study. The Bible tells you always nothing about what a man is, but it does tell you what a father is, what a brother is, what a son is, and so on. Father is one of those subjects to look up. Uh, fathers need uh, to teach their children, to discipline their children, and to provide for their children and protect their children. And therefore, children need to learn from them, obey them, trust them, and depend upon them. And in our praying, we are depending and trusting upon our Father who is in heaven. And so in our approach to God, we always need to approach Him as our Father. Now, you don't always have to use the word, though to never use the word would be really wrong because you're not actually approaching Him in the way in which you should, nor teaching people how to approach him as you should. So the, the, the beginning of the prayer, Our Father, is not an, an irreve- irrelevant addition. It is an attitude of relationship which is right and appropriate. That as a child approaches a father is how I should be approaching my heavenly father, how I should be approaching God. But I cannot approach him as my father in the end unless I do so through the Lord Jesus Christ because God is too holy to look upon sin according to Habakkuk 1 I think it's verse 11 and yet I am deeply and profoundly sinful and so when Isaiah sees God in the temple uh, sees Yahweh in the temple which is in the New Testament sees Jesus in the temple it's one of those connections of Jesus in John 12 and Isaiah 6 when he sees Yahweh in the temple he immediately of course is overwhelmed with his sense of sinfulness as is Moses, as is uh, Gideon, as is uh, Peter and the day in the fishing, as soon as you actually come face to face with God your sinfulness will be overwhelming. You see it in Revelation 1 when when John sees uh, the great voice and turns around and he falls down as if dead straight away. So how can we approach God the Father but through the Lord Jesus Christ? It's by his death and resurrection that we are able to approach him and in fact in his resurrection and ascension we're taught twice, once in Romans, once in Hebrews, that what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing at the moment is interceding for us. So he is our mediator and so we pray to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again verbally, That can be expressed in our prayers, and is expressed in our prayers, that as we start praying, O Heavenly Father, we finish praying through Jesus Christ our Lord. The little through Jesus Christ our Lord tacked on the end of prayers is not an irrelevance, not an unimportant thing. It's it's one of those consistent reminders that the basis upon which I can ask anything of the Heavenly Holy Father is Jesus Christ. By his death, by his resurrection, I come to you. Now, sometimes we need to spell out the, the meaning of it a little bit more clearly, rather than just, uh, Father, through Jesus Christ. Sometimes we need to say, Oh, Father, you are the ruler of all things, giver of all good gifts. And we sometimes need to finish off in our prayers, saying, through Jesus, who enables me by your death and resurrection to come into your presence. So, but I've always got to pray through Jesus. Now, when I pray to God as Father through Jesus Christ our Lord, that is when I'm praying in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit at all times in uh, Ephesians 6, isn't it? How do you pray in the Spirit? Well, what the Spirit does is he regenerates me. And in his regeneration of me, he teaches me that God is my Father, Romans chapter 8, and he teaches me that Jesus is Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Without the Spirit, I could not pray to God as my Father, and I could not pray through Jesus Christ, my Lord. But with the Spirit, that is how I do pray. The Holy Spirit does not point to himself. The Holy Spirit is the self-effacing member of the, of the Trinity. And he always points to God as Father and Jesus as Lord. And so I'm not praying in the Spirit when I pray in tongues. Uh, that's when I'm praying mindlessly for very little purpose and no good purpose for anybody else. But I am praying in the Spirit when I call God Father and when I pray to the Jesus Christ as my Lord. That is, the theology of the Trinity, of the Gospel, of the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's all reflected and expressed in our prayers. So... Now that I'm a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, I really must take even more seriously the importance of prayer, and in particular intercessory prayer. And so the practice of private prayer is really important for us at the moment. I'm moving fairly quickly in hope that we'll get to question time, but the main part of the talk is actually going to come under point number five, by the way. The practice of private prayer is, of course, we are to pray without ceasing. We are to be constant in prayer. Uh, how can you fulfill that? Well, very simply, actually, um, by your continued conversation with God at all times. Wherever you are, whenever you are, you do so in conversation with God. You constantly need to be asking God. You, can, you don't do it by withdrawing to a nunnery or a, or a monastery and doing nothing other than praying you do it through the activities of life that as i speak as i as i prepare as i walk as i talk god is the person that i keep addressing and need to be addressing in prayer because i have my faith in him i am dependent that's what faith means upon him what then is prayer prayer is faith articulated It's putting faith into words. To ask God for everything and anything is to consistently depend upon God for anything and everything, which is having faith in God. That's what it is. And so, praying for the parking spot or praying for the conversion of the city, the big things, the little things, there is nothing that too small for God to be interested in. And there is nothing too big for God to be able to do. So in everything and in anything, I am to depend upon him. And when I pray, I am articulating that dependence upon God for anything and everything. And so it's just the mindset of life. But also notice, of course, it was an apostolic priority in Acts 6. They were set aside from waiting on tables in order to be able to concentrate upon the word and prayer. For me, prayerless sinful wretch that I am, it is much easier for me to concentrate on the word than on the prayer. I don't know why. The word is really adult and complicated. The prayer is really simple and childish. Childlike if you prefer, but childish. It brings me back to what I really am, nothing more than a little child, nothing more than a beggar in the presence of God. It actually it, it helps me to be the true me. I mean, prayer is the easy, most wonderful bit, but for some reason it's the bit Satan keeps me away from much more. But all the other things crowd in on life. Spending time praying with people, you've got to control your diary to do that, haven't you? I mean, I will do it when I'm confronted with a massive problem, but then even an ungodly wretch does it when they're faced with a massive problem, isn't it? As a child of God and as a minister of God's people, then surely I need to control my diary to do this. Because it's not going to come to me, it's something I've got to go to and make it a priority in my life. That's why I wanted you to just write those things down at the beginning, to stop and think here for a moment. How is the priority of prayer reflected in what you are now doing? Is it the thing that you get up in the morning and spend an hour at before you know you go and do other things in the day or is it something that really just gets squeezed into when you've got a moment spare or have you got a plan and a program? See theoretically if we did a little test around my suspicions are all of you would agree with the with the concept that prayer is the high priority in life that's okay and you could do that in the classroom at more college too but now you're in the business of being in full-time paid ministry it's not quite as easy as it was in abstract where does prayer really fit into the program of your life the, the problem with the, the the diocese is the Prayerlessness of the clergy. It's always going to be the problem of the diocese. That's really where we need to work at. It's also, of course, the apostolic model. When you look at the Apostle's letters, the Apostle Paul, over and over again, I, I've been praying since the day I heard of your conversion, I've been praying ceaselessly for you, and then he tells what he's been praying for. You always know when people actually are doing what they're saying about prayer is when they can tell you the details of what they pray for you know i'll pray for you that's wonderful that's marvelous what does that mean well it means the same as the non-christian when he says i'm thinking of you what are you praying for me what are you asking god for me what is your your shopping list for me Uh, one of the most productive times of my christian ministry was when I set out on the uh, church roll that I had and I wrote out on little cards, I mean, these are funny things before you had computers, little white pieces of board and you had a a stick with ink coming out the end and you used to write on it, it was a fascinating technology. Um, And I wrote on these cards, each card, one person, what I was praying for and I just had them in a box and every morning I would get up and I'd just work through the role praying the things I was praying for, noting down the answers to prayer, noting down conversations of things I'd had with people and therefore other things to pray for them that I didn't know before and I just slowly built the church role, a pastoral church role uh, by, by, by the exercise of praying for people and it is fascinating how God does answer our prayers and God does change the person who prays, because praying for people about things changes your attitude to them. You can't you can't hate people that you pray for. So pray for your enemies is one of the ways of overcoming enmity. It overcomes it in your own heart. It stops you from being hostile to them when you're praying for them. They might continue to hate you, but you can't retaliate the same way if you're praying for them and when you do pray for them you start to notice changes in them and also when you pray for people just the congregation members you realize I actually don't know what to pray for you and so it means next Sunday I sit down and say what's happening in your life so that I now know what to pray for them it was a very useful little exercise that I'm sorry I haven't got back to at the moment much harder one to do in the context of this cathedral is my rationalization but in particular, I want to talk about common prayer. and I, I, I suspect this is just a grumpy old man verse now. But when we prayed by the Book of Common Prayer, we prayed in a way that was not always uh, genuine. There's a great capacity for hypocrisy and insincerity when you're praying written prayers, written by somebody else, written in a very strange old language. It's just you just go through the process. I personally found that I could lead the services much better if I didn't think what I was praying about at the time. If I just went into automatic pilot i would read the prayer book services with all the right intonations all the way through and it was much more helpful for the congregation but as i stopped and thought about the words i would stumble and make all mistakes and become very much more difficult well once you start thinking like that you realize you've got a problem haven't you and prayer book but when we prayed by the prayer book we prayed good and godly things that were worth praying and we didn't make theological errors and we modeled prayerfulness the right way over the last 40 50 years more and more prayer book prayer services have been gone by the wayside and people are racking up their own prayers and by and large moving to extemporaneous prayer now extemporary prayer is much better because it has the sense of immediacy it has the sense of being able to direct the prayer on a specific thing rather than pray for uh, the, Her Majesty the Queen and Prince Philip and Prince Charles and and all the little royal family. We, we can pray for actually Fred getting a job. It's, it's a much more specific thing. And also there's the sense that I'm hearing what's on the pastor's heart rather than what was on Cranmer's mind 400 years ago. And so I'm much more in touch with a sense of reality, authenticity, (laughs) of course the downside of it is we hear what's on your heart and what's on your heart's not that crash hot and really we'd be better off without it Um, somebody uh, complained to me the other day because they were at a prayer meeting in a church where they were uh, no it was a church service where uh, they were the leader of the service was praying that given global warming we have shorter showers And this person said to me there's no way in the world I'm going to have shorter showers and so I'm not going to say amen to that prayer, I'm saying no Lord, no! (laughs) Now you've got to ask questions not just in terms of is it common prayer when people disagree? No. But also is that the priority of public church life? The issue of the length of showers? Is that the most important thing we should be praying for? Why did not the Lord include it in his prayer? I mean, what what are the things that really matter to pray for? What are the things we agree about in prayer? Why are we praying what we are praying? You see, when you pray just from your heart, you've got to make sure your heart's right, haven't you? And by heart, I mean head as well as heart at that point. So what is it that we are praying for? Well, here we go about the practice of common prayer. As ministers of the gospel, we are leaders of common prayer. By common prayer, I mean praying with somebody else, not just praying privately. And we must lead and model in praying out loud with other people. I'm not meaning church services, although that's one form of it. I mean home groups, Bible study group, I mean a scripture class, I mean talking to an individual one-to-one. When we pray with another person, we're praying common prayer. Now, first thing to notice is we've got to avoid hypocrisy, and that's a real trap. Because when I'm praying privately, it's just between me and the Lord what I'm saying, and hypocrisy really is a waste of space, isn't it? But when I'm praying with you, you are listening to my prayers, I am listening to your prayers, and I am trying to pray in a way that that captures both our minds, that we are going to be in agreement with. But the temptation of a sinful man is I am going to pray in such a way that you will be impressed by me, by my my words, by my concern for you, by my. And so I'm not praying to God, I am praying to you. Now, Matthew chapter 6, very clear about this. You see, that, uh, that's why you go into a room and pray privately. But yet, corporate prayer is a right and proper thing. The problem is you've got to deal with your own heart properly. And mustn't, you must be willing to lose yourself in prayer. Lose yourself, not in the sense of going off into the Buddhist, you know, om, 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 I'm not there anymore as a person. Lose yourself in the sense of, it doesn't matter what he thinks of me. It doesn't matter what she thinks about me doesn't matter what the congregation thinks about me. No point climbing down saying, did I pray all right? It's it's an irrelevance at that level, but make sure you do pray right. But not for your reputation's sake. You've got to lose yourself. But when Jesus, you see, he, he was asked, teach us how to pray. There's nothing about posture. You can kneel at the prayer desk or you can sit or you can stand. If you actually go through the whole Bible, there's any number of postures. Lie flat in your face is one of them. Uh, if you want to, but you don't have to. Um, any way you want to, the, the posture doesn't matter. NIV, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, one of the chief reasons I finally gave up on the NIV. Completely wrong translation of that verse about men lifting holy hands. and. It, it, just check the Greek sometime and give up on the NIV. The, the posture is almost unimportant. The one posture that matters is the humble heart. That's the posture that matters. Isaiah chapter 66. Whom do I look up to, says God? Who would God look up to? The contrite spirit, the humble heart that trembles at my word. That's the posture. If I cherish sin in my heart, Psalm 66 says, I think it's verse 18, Psalm 66, 18, if I I treasure sin in my heart, the Lord would not listen to my prayers. So the posture that matters is the spiritual posture of the heart. That's the one that really matters, not the bodily of anything. The content of your prayers, well, the Lord Jesus taught the content of prayers, and the Lord's prayer is really important and really not important it's really important because this is what the Lord laid out for us as the things that we should be concerned about to ask God over and so they should frame our prayer life We should be concerned for God's name. We should be concerned for his kingdom. We should be concerned for his will. We should seek forgiveness and protection from the evil one. We should seek what I think is the bread of tomorrow, that is the bread of life. They're the things that we should be seeking. And they should be reflected in the things that we are praying for. I can pray for anything and everything, but I should be praying for these things. Why do I say it's unimportant? Well, it's unimportant in that you don't have to rattle through the words. And of course it gets terribly abused through Roman Catholicism, where as part of the, uh, uh, the confessional, uh, in order to do penance, you're sent away to say the Lord's Prayer ten times. Uh, you know, go and say you know, ten Paternosters and four Hail Marys, and, and then you're paid off. Well, to use the Lord's Prayer for that purpose, when Jesus actually in Matthew 6 teaches us that's exactly what not to do, is really part of the absurdity of the roman catholic system so just rattling out the lord's prayer is not the point but actually praying the lord's prayer is the point point. and so it's right that we pray the lord's prayer and we do so frequently now in bringing in non-liturgical services one of the things that got dropped out was the lord's prayer in using the Book of Common Prayer, one of the things that got abused was having the Lord's Prayer. In some services you pray the Lord's Prayer two or three times in the same service. You think, oh, what's the point? And it's just got to do with editorial problems over years and years, centuries, that it took to put the prayer book together. That's one of the problems, that you keep saying the Lord's Prayer. So we did this big pendulum swing from praying the Lord's Prayer repetitiously and mindlessly, across to never praying the Lord's Prayer and check out with your youth group look look back over your services of the recent years and just work out do they know the Lord's Prayer off by heart you'll be surprised that actually there are quite a few Christians who never pray the Lord's Prayer now because not part of it likewise the Apostles Creed uh, or any of the creeds for that matter they couldn't recite it likewise the Ten Commandments they're hard-pressed to think what the Ten Commandments are I checked out a group of school teachers recently and uh, only half of them got only half of, the, uh, got half of the Ten Commandments, Christian teachers, but only about half of them got the, the, the Ten Commandments correctly. Um, these are adults. So we've given up reciting the Ten Commandments, we just ripped down to the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, and your neighbour as yourself, which is absolutely good and right, provided you know what love will mean and what it will do. That is, you you love by keeping the commandments and by keeping the commandments you love. But if you only talk about love without ever mentioning the commandments then people do not know the content of love. So you've you've got to say these things within the community for people in the community to even know these things exist let alone know what's within them. The Lord's Prayer is important then. But that is not the limit. Anything and everything without anxiety. Now let me talk about common prayer firstly in terms of personal work when you have a conversation with people look to always finish the conversation with prayer especially if you have a conversation about something more significant than the state of origin which I think is beyond prayer it's a lost cause I believe in the sovereignty of God but only to a certain extent it stops at the Queensland border Um, but you know if you're going to pray about if you're going to talk about anything of any significance with people make it your practice to finish that conversation with prayer as the normality of what Christians do together whatever it may be for it models and teaches prayerfulness if you never pray one to one with members of your congregational life etc they don't know that you pray They don't know they are to pray. They don't know how to pray. It's never occurred to them to pray. But if you're a pastor who is always praying with people one-to-one, one one day you'll look around at morning tea after church and there'll be all kinds of other people praying with people around the place. Because prayer is part of Christian living. But if the pastor's not doing it with them one-to-one, it will be unlikely that they will be doing it. We're leaders, we've got to lead and we've got to lead in prayer and we've got to do it personal prayer like that. It also of course changes the nature of our conversation with people. The dynamic is completely different once you introduce prayer as part of our conversation. The seriousness of conversation, the reality of conversation, the depth of conversations is transformed when people know that at the end of this conversation we're going to pray together, you'll find less of them coming and talking to you about the football and the golf and more of them coming and talking about what to do with their kids or how to be able to solve the problem at work because they know you're someone who is serious-minded and God-conscious. It's a very small thing, but it's a really important part of ministering to people. And if you can get them to pray as well, that is better. Because if you are the one that prays and they don't, then you become their mediator. And so as much as you can, you try and say, well, why don't we pray about this together? How about you go first? Or I'll pray first and then you pray. If you pray first, don't cover the whole subject because then they don't know what to do. I used to work with John Chapman and and we had staff prayers and by the time he finished praying, he'd covered everything in the universe that I'd ever thought of or could think of or conceivably think of and so my prayer would be uh, Amen. You know what I mean? I really knew. So in the end, the secretary and I, we we revolted against him and told him he was only ever allowed to pray third. Uh, He could pick up what we left behind, which was still just as long. But we we pray with this person and we help them to become prayers by inviting them to pray with us rather than us praying for them alone. And especially, and this is where 1 Timothy 2 is important in verse 8, if you've got the right translation, it's important that men pray. That's the really important thing. We're having a men's breakfast this uh, Saturday morning. When we put up our slide advertising the men's breakfast, what's the picture that we use? Have a guess. Bacon. Sorry? Bacon. Baked beans? Bacon and, eggs. bacon and eggs, yes. Sausages. Yeah, that's right. Fat. Right. Hey. Come to men's breakfast, sausages, bacon, eggs, food, Yeah. And we're going to get a footballer in to talk about men. We know we'll have a Christian congregation when we have men's breakfast and we have praying hands as the picture. Because when men come together, they are to pray. Real men pray. That's the side. But you see, that's not how we think of men's work. Men's work is prayer. 1 Timothy 2.8 It's one of the very few passages that tells men qua men what men should do is we should pray. And so we've got to turn prayer into men's work as an activity. So in particular, fellows, when you chat to a bloke, pray with him. It's easy to pray with the girls, i found. Pray with the men. They're the ones that you really need to. I don't know whether that verse is there because it's a particular job for men or because men are particularly weak at it. I'm not sure why Paul specifies that men are to be the ones that pray, but it's fascinating when you're in a prayer group, a mixed prayer group, just don't start. You know, say, well, how about we pray? I'll finish in a few minutes. And then just do a little statistical survey to see who prays first and who prays most often, as nearly always the women. I've had women over the years come to me over and over again saying, can you help me with my husband who won't lead our family in prayer? I've never, ever had a man come to me and say, my wife doesn't pray enough. That the, you know, it just never is the case. So there is a problem for men and prayer that we need to address. And 1 Timothy 2.8 is explicit. But what about small group work? <clears throat> well, small group work in particular is a great time for prayer, for common prayer, in terms of teaching people to pray And teaching them how to pray, teaching them the concerns of prayer, giving them the opportunity to express themselves in prayer, (coughs) in a safe environment. But it also is where we can bring our common concerns to the Lord. And that is why we go around asking for prayer points but I'm afraid when we ask for prayer points we tend to wind up with, well help me with my quiet times and, and other kind of uh, acceptable things of prayer but we ask for individual prayer points rather than asking for common prayer points. Now and nothing wrong with asking for individual prayer points, you know, nothing wrong with Chris telling us what he needs us to be praying for and, and we pray for Chris But it'd be, you know, what about us as a group? What do we as a group need to be praying for? And what are our concerns outside ourselves, which are still the group's concerns, it'll be different to the other group on Thursday night or different to a group in China, but our concerns here, because we express the concerns over the Bible study or the discussion, But then when we come to prayer, it's only personal prayer, not those group concerns. Sometimes as a leader what you need to do is, as you go through the discussion, note the things to pray. And so you can actually do some sum-up of the group work by saying, well, now tonight we notice that we're really concerned about Julia Gillard's marriage, we're really concerned about uh, the, the, the problem of uh, uh, the leader of the opposition's over-concern with athleticism, we're concerned about, and so we'll pray for these things because these are the things we've talked about together, these are the concerns we've had. I hope your Bible studies raised to slightly higher levels of <laughs> concern than those. But we pray for those things. But then getting everybody to lead in prayer teaches people to pray. Now, if you've got a congregation of older people who have never been in small Bible study groups, you'll find that they are very reticent usually in leading in prayer even one-to-one. They much prefer you to pray for them because they don't know they can do it. And that's what was meant by my dear old friend who is now in glory, bless her, she was a great one, uh, when she said, but Philip, there'll be no more praying in the congregation as a result of you preaching these wonderful sermons. Because people learn to pray by doing it. And you need to hold them, hold their hand in the doing of it. And so some groups you need to say, look, I know some of you are not used to praying. We're just going to go very simply, one sentence prayers. All you need to say is, Father, uh, give us X, Y, Z, Amen. And I'll even help you. You pray for men's breakfast. You pray for the women's Bible study. You pray for the Sunday school. You pray for the... And we'll go around in turn so we don't have to have big, long, awkward silences. You actually help people in the, the really basic... And they just say the, one prayer to... Within six months, they'll be praying. And you won't be able to shut them up. But you need to help people to learn to pray out loud. There's a real inhibition for people who have not been in small groups. Uh, which is a a terrible stultifying of their spiritual life. Um, And small groups are a great place to learn, uh, to be able to do it. But what about public meetings or church meetings? Well, here, modelling is really important. Here it's important that you show people how to pray by the way in which you pray. That you show people what to pray by what you pray. You show people how to pray in the very what you pray. And you teach people the theology of the gospel in the way in which you relate and address God. Uh, Because of my attempts over the years to involve other people in the congregational life rather than the minister doing everything, we've had other people read the Bible, other people lead in prayer. But I read Spurgeon and Spurgeon says he'd never get anybody else to lead in prayer but himself because the pulpit prayer as he would called it, that's when the congregation hears what's on the pastor's heart. That's when they can feel his love for them and his concern for them and what he wants for them as he speaks to God about them. Now, I'm going to talk about preaching in praying in a moment or two, but it's not just preaching. As as I pray for you, you hear of my love for you, my concerns for you, my desires for you. If If the pastor never leads in prayer, the congregation never hears the pastor's concern for the congregation. But you see the powerful importance then in your public prayer, your leadership of the group. Now, it can be it can be a home group. You know, if, if the leader does never pray for the members, then how will they know? Paul goes out of his way to tell them precisely what he's praying for them. One of the key things in public prayer always has to do forgiveness. For that is the basis upon which we can ever approach to God... And that is, like in the Lord's Prayer, one of the fundamental things. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us lies at the heart of the gospel. To leave out the confession and to leave out the absolution from our church services is a fundamental error for we're leaving the gospel out of the church service. When the Lord Jesus Christ rose and he met his disciples in John chapter 20 and he poured his Spirit upon them, he gave them the challenge and what was the challenge why whosoever sins you forgive are forgiven whosoever sins you hold are hu- that is what the work of the spirit comes upon the apostles to do check out his challenge for them in luke chapter 24 it's the same kind of thing go into print all the nations preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins And so dealing with sin and forgiveness is a fundamental of what should be in church life, in public life, public community life. But we run groups, small groups, with hardly ever dealing with confession of sin and absolution. And then we run larger congregational groups and we leave out confession of sin and absolution. The absolution is one of the high points liturgically of any service. When the minister can get up and say to the people who are being repentant, you are forgiven. That is a fantastic privilege that is ours, given by the Holy Spirit, which I think we don't value enough, judging by the congregational life I've been to where it's just not mentioned. When we pray communally, we've got to pray that which we have in common. Now that means the level of generality changes with the nature of the congregation you're in and the size of the congregation. See, in a little group, we can pray for Chris's new job. Didn't know he'd lost his job, but you know, we can pray that Chris might get a new job. But in a congregation of 300 people, you say that and they say, who's Chris? Which Chris is that? You know, has he lost his job? I mean, no one we're going to pray for the things that the 300 are interested in and have in common, which will be different to the things that the 10 have, which are different to the one-on-one prayer that we're having with a person. Sometimes in the public, the prayers are too personal. They, they, they don't. But when you're moving for generality of prayers, when you get big enough, you, you're kind of like the beauty queen. What do you want? World peace. And the kind of prayer lacks any sense of, of bite or, or reality to it that can be uh, had. But as you pray, you will model the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ you will model a Christian understanding of the world. What you pray for will show how a Christian person thinks about the world and what you don't pray for shows that as well. Modelling is the powerful teaching tool. It really is powerful. In fact it is so powerful that it is inevitable. People will pray like you whether you want them to or not. This is one of the areas that the sheep always grow to look exactly like the shepherd. I don't know how this happened at St. Matthias, and it's been to my enormous irritation and shame ever since. But in my years at St. Matthias, a a, a particular pattern developed, which I do not hear in myself, and I don't think it's there, but it developed. I cannot find who the leader was who developed it for the congregation, which under shepherd shepherded us this way, and if I can, I will strangle him, but... They developed a pattern that every phrase and clause always ended on the up. We always were praying that God would look after us and wherever we went, we could. and you could always pick a sympathized prayer because they always went up at the end of every sentence. Even our men went up <laughs> instead of down. It, it's contagious. And prayer is like that. Actually, if you've got an ear for it, you can work out which church people come from. If you know the churches, by the way, they pray. The things they pray for and the manner they pray, it just is the character. I've got a group of friends over in England who pray, Amen. They are rippers on it. And they outdo each other in volume and quality of Amens. And whenever I hear them, I know exactly who they are. Uh, they, they run camps and their camp prayer times are they pray for the, the boys and girls at the camp and they go around in long prayer meetings at night praying for each person in the camp, you know. And, uh, Please God, bring John through to the Lord Jesus tonight. Amen. Those all little arrow prayers. And they just go around and all for an hour or so. There, Amen. And they, uh, that's how they pray. You always big bash campers by the, the quality of their amens. Now, that's kind of nice in one sense. I wish we'd I'm going to mention it and have more amens. But you will model prayer whether you want to or not. And you'll model prayerlessness whether you want to or not. And so, seeing that is the inevitability, stop and think about what you're doing. How do you want the people to pray? Because you must pray like that if you want them to pray like that. So what is it you want your people to pray about? What are the issues that matter today that really should be the prayer time of the congregational life? So you've got to teach your people how to pray as John taught his disciples and Jesus taught his disciples. And if that is the case, well then I'd run to suggest to you brothers and sisters that we teach them the gospel. Which is why I want to pray, Father in heaven, and I want to pray through Jesus Christ, whose death has made it possible for me to call you Father. I, I want them to understand my dependence upon God in all things, and I want to—I want them to know to be thankful for all things. So, therefore, these are the things that are going to be in my pattern of prayer, in my language of prayer, and when they make fun of me. Uh, you know, as, as some people have been known to do. And they say, oh, Philip's going to pray, our Father in Heaven, uh, our Heavenly Father, and they, they mimic my words. Yes, victory! Ah, they have heard, they've understood, they're doing it. They might think it's funny, but that's all right. They know how to address God. I've succeeded. And I'll kick them later. <laughs> So I want to teach the gospel in the ways in which I pray. And I especially need to do it because we're in the context of totally weird views of prayer. And they're out there, friends. A lot of non-Christians think prayer is meditation and therefore it is wordless and in its higher forms, mindless. That is not prayer. I, I, I used to go, a long time ago, and only a few times to the Society of Biblical Studies at University of Sydney. Any of you ever been to it? I think it's still operating. And all the denominations kind of were there. It was the people in the department, the Divinity School and, and academics who were interested in biblical studies. Okay, But because it was a kind of Christianized thing, we had to start in prayer. But because we couldn't agree about anything, our prayer time was silence. So we stood for a minute in silence praying and at the end of the silence we said Amen. Well they did, I didn't because I didn't know what they were praying. And I'm not going to say Amen to anybody's prayers, especially a Jew, Turk or infidel who's praying. I don't, don't know, I don't even know which God he's praying to, let alone what he's praying. So I'm not going to say Amen to his silence. But it's complete absurdity. That is not common prayer. That is not Christian prayer. That is not fellowship in prayer. That's, that, it's just awful. Um, after all, you just learn to come late and miss the prayer time that's because I'm a Christian. Just stop about that for a moment you're going to miss the prayer time because you're a Christian so there's also of course the other end the two things that we talked about earlier that is the name it and claim it people and the can't change anything people so they're going through prayer but they don't actually believe it does anything and there's the name it and claim it I, I, I was at uh, one of my alcoholic meetings a while back and we invited one of the blokes uh, who came from Pentecostal church to pray, to lead us in prayer rather, they went around and collected up the prayer points and then he got up to lead in prayer and he named each of the prayer points which he'd written down very faithfully and his prayer each time was, thank you God for giving it to us so you know, Fred wanted a new job thank you God, Fred's got a new job thank you God, Bill's healed of this, thank you God that we don't it didn't actually ask God anything. Never got around to ask a thing. And that was leading in prayer. Now, that's not leading in prayer, that's not even praying. That, that's a complete... Now, given the fact that you're in a world where people are praying in all kinds of weird and wonderful ways, you as Christian pastors need to set a really good model of how to pray, what you're praying, the manner and the language, the, the ways, the approach... Because people learn by how they see it, and you see the you know young pop culture prayers, uh, Jesus, uh, um, uh, Jesus, well, Jesus, it's uh, you're great, uh, Jesus, that's uh, uh, yeah, it's good, we're here, and uh, um, Jesus, uh, the New Testament doesn't pray to Jesus. Acts chapter seven. Stephen does, but then he actually could see him at the time when he was talking to him. (laughs) If I see him or if you see him, by all means do so. It's not theologically heretical come Lord Jesus, you can pray come Lord Jesus but the person of the Trinity you approach in prayer is the Father who gives that you are depending upon. And so to teach our youth fellowship to pray to Jesus sounds all very, but it's not actually teaching them good theology. it's, It's a it's a false theology that we're teaching. So we need to model and express our way theologically. For prayer as faith articulated approaches God as a Heavenly Father and may talk of other attributes that are particularly appropriate for this. So I'm praying in the middle of a drought. Heavenly Father, you are the ruler of all the weather and the climate. You, you control the sun. You send the, the sun on the, uh, and the rain on the just and the unjust. Please give to us rain in our time. So you pray to God, naming the attributes that are appropriate and relevant to the particular thing you're praying, and you pray through the enabling of the Lord Jesus Christ to approach God, and you pray for forgiveness and absolution, and you pray with thanksgiving. That is faithful prayer. Now when we come to it, though, corporately, number one, are we praying i or are we praying we if i'm praying i then we are not praying it's verbal mannerisms that teach truth so if i say uh, 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 chris why don't you pray for us what have i just asked him to do I've asked him to pray for us. So I haven't asked him to lead us in prayer but to pray for us. So the prayer he should then pray is Heavenly Father you know these men and women and the ministry they have. See he's praying for us isn't he? That's praying for us. Whereas if I'm asking to lead us in prayer that's Heavenly Father help us but 9 times out of 10 today people say Heavenly Father I ask that well bully for you sit down and shut up you can do that to God anytime you like we've asked you to lead us in prayer or we're asking you to pray for us but rarely in church will it be the latter it can be I was at a meeting last night, a Ministry Training and Development Council meeting and the chairman asked one of the members to pray for us and he did. He went around and prayed for every person in the, at the table and our participation in the work that was there. Perfectly appropriate thing to do, he did what he was asked to do, he prayed for us. He wasn't praying our common concern to God, he was praying for each of the participants around the table. It, do you hear the language issue that's there? But when people move to I in corporate prayer, it's nearly always wrong. It's we, because they're leading us in prayer. So don't ask people to pray. Ask people to lead us in prayer. Just putting that little word lead in each time you do it helps people know what they're doing. Teaches people what they're doing. Will you lead us in prayer, please? And then you know that you've got to pray for the things that everybody's interested in. Now, the next big no-no in corporate prayer is you're praying, not preaching. When I'm praying, I'm asking God for things. I'm not informing him about things. He tends to know already. And I'm not informing the congregation about what's happened either. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give Chris a job because he lost the job the other day because the boss actually sacked him, which isn't really fair, but he knows that. And we are praying about it because we all know it. So therefore, I don't need to tell you and I don't certainly need to tell him. I've got to ask him for the situation that we already know about. And therefore, I'm not talking to the congregation I'm talking on behalf of the congregation I'm talking so that the congregation may hear me but I'm not talking to the congregation I'm not giving them notices nor am I implying what they should do and certainly I'm not telling them what they should do now the implying one is really tricky Uh, We're in financial difficulties. Let's have a prayer time about it. Heavenly Father, give us such generosity of hearts that we will, it really is a, a, a manipulation of the congregation at that point. You know, that we will give as we should, that we will meet our financial budgets, that we will put aside our love of ice creams to pay for the, for the youth worker. That we—I'm actually giving a message here to the congregation. Uh, what do I need to do? I need, Heavenly Father, we are short of money. Please give to us. Give to us generously. Give to us so that we will have enough and not be short. Don't want to go that next step and. Imply that, or worse still, preach it, because that so frequently happens. I heard a church the other a church the other day, and I heard three prayers. All of them were sermons. And it's a real problem for us who are preachers. But you've got to remember, you're talking to God. You're not talking to the congregation. Very tricky, especially what's the word may, and may is a great leap off into the sermon. Give to us X, Y, Z, so that we may, and then almost always is, we're doing things. We ask God to do things rather than God enabling us to do things particularly. Next is the importance of preparation. You see, words matter, and they tell us lots. There's been a shift in words over time. People used to talk about people being saved. Then they talked about them being converted. Then they talked about them making a commitment. Hear the difference in language? You went back to the early 20th century, before my time, you'd hear people say, oh, you know, Bill, he's been saved. Do we talk like that today? I don't think we talk like that today. He's made a commitment. Very different view of theology that lies between saying that somebody has been saved and somebody's made a commitment well likewise praying is like that you see praying to Jesus or to the spirit or praying to God but never calling him father says enormous things secondly preparation though you need even even if it's extemporaneous you need to prepare you need to prepare your heart you need to be able to pray what is the truth I went to. A, used to go to a brethren prayer meeting and the first few times I went it was fantastic it was really good these people prayed for the scriptures and for the heart but after a few months of going I realised they always prayed exactly the same prayers same scriptures, you know, one old man is a lovely old man but he had 10 memory verses and he gave all 10 every prayer uh, and you wish he'd read some other part of the Bible after a while um, they weren't prepared one of my things is, is praying shorter prayers it, it really is important really and here, of course, is in the praying, the extempore prayer, uh, is the danger of the praying for the shorter showers. Um, you haven't actually thought out whether this is something a congregation actually believes or wants. Um, maybe they need it, but then if that's the case, preach the sermon on it don't pray for it. And so you, to change the pattern, you need to prepare carefully. One of the things is to approach God with confidence. Each successive Anglican prayer book has less confidence. That doesn't surprise me because each successive committee that has drawn up the prayer book has a a less grasp of the gospel. Uh, When you don't have any grasp of the gospel, you can't approach God with confidence because boldness in the presence of God comes from an assurance of salvation that comes through the death of the Lord Jesus. If you're not assured of your salvation through the death of the Lord Jesus, you won't come into his presence with boldness. And it's caught up in the language. Compare, those of you who want to do a little historical study sometime, compare the colics from 1662 the Australian prayer book to the Australian prayer, the next one whatever it is and you'll see that the verbs become less and less confident. Um, it's the character. See we've got to pray, it's the verb that gives it away. Give to us, protect us, change us rather than please Uh, may you, uh, could you it's the verb that tells the nature of this child is in the presence of the father or this person doesn't know the father and hasn't got confidence to be able to approach him let alone those indefinite ones, I had someone lead in prayer here once and they had a long list of the prayer points and they said we pray for we pray for, we pray," but we never did it was the exact reverse of the name it and claim it people. So we pray for the Church Missionary Society. We pray for the Synod that is meeting uh, next week. We pray for... That's not praying for. What are we praying for? What are we asking? We're not asking anything at that point. And that's because we don't know what would be on the mind of God what we're going to do is pray for those things over which we have an agreement which is why we have got to say amen and can I encourage you say amen loudly so as to get a new mood in our society you don't have to go like the bash campers in England but at least improve where at the moment because people don't know what amen is about they don't have that sense of corporate prayer that engages it but also pray prayers that are short enough that people can say amen to and often I went to a Presbyterian school and we used to pray. It was one prayer from the pastor and he would pray for 10 minutes. Well, there was no way I'd say Amen at the end. I'd been asleep for four or five of them. I never knew what he was going to pray for. He'd start off here and we'd wander over there, there, there and everywhere else. And at the end of it, when it comes to say Amen, I have to do a quick backtrack through 10 minutes to work out whether I agreed with it all. It was hopeless. My mind wandered every time. I never knew what he was praying about. Presbyterian prayers have come into Anglicans. See, we got rid of the prayer book and we're now doing mini-sermons in prayer. Anglican prayers are much shorter. Look at the colleagues. They only go for about three or four lines. They only pray one prayer, one subject. We ask God for rain. Please, God, send the rains. We're in terrible drought, as you know. Send the rain. Be merciful to us. Send rain on our land. And we ask it through the one who controls all things, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we've got terrible troubles over in Syria, as you know. Please have mercy on the nation of Syria. Stop the war that is happening. Give peace and justice to the land. Bring mercy upon that land and especially the Christians who are there. Amen. One thing. That's all the mind of a congregation can cope with in your prayers. Your mind can go for 10 minutes. There's not One prayer, one point. And when you do so, look for biblical ideas. So you've got an issue, rain. Okay, what am I going to pray for rain? What's the Bible text about rain? Well, Acts chapter 14, God gives rain in good seasons. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, he gives the rain on the just and the unjust. Use that verse up front so people in the congregation will know that where you're coming from and pray for that aspect. Of, right? Pray out of the Bible rather than just out of our thinking it helps the congregation to focus it helps them to see that you are living by the word of god and it means your prayers might actually reflect the mind of god better because you're praying the things that god wants prayed which is part of the theology of prayer don't give the reference don't say oh heavenly father you know that as you said in matthew chapter 5 verse 27a you he actually does know where it is And the congregation is not going to look it up at that moment because their eyes are closed and their heads are bowed. I mean, you do get with the program here. But it does teach people to live by the prayer of God, by the word of God. Now, the practice of community prayer is the last topic of which we'll just go very quickly. That is, it's important uh, to pray biblical orthodoxy. Um, So, for example, at a time of war, what should you pray for? Peace, what else? Safety, justice, comfort, return of Jesus, reconciliation in Christ. What does the Bible tell you to pray for? Laws and those in authority? Your enemies. You didn't think of praying for them, did you? That's what the Bible says to do. Pray for your enemies. Uh, on 9-11 I held a prayer meeting at the University of New South Wales what do I pray for? It was the day after it was, you know, smack next day I just ran a public prayer meeting, the community didn't know what to do people were walking around like stunned mullets, a lot of American students there didn't know what to do I ran a public prayer meeting, I prayed for the enemies fascinating reaction and response praying for the enemies because I'm not just praying the things everybody is on everybody's heart I'm praying what is on the heart of God fascinating several people from middle eastern background who were there several people who are from marxist backgrounds who were there came and saw me later because they didn't think that they thought I was just going to be a pro american rally but I prayed for my enemies And several Americans came and said they were deeply hurt by me doing it, but the longer they sat there and thought about it, the more they realised it was a right thing to do. But I would never have thought of doing it if I hadn't been actually looking into the text of Scripture, trying to work out what on earth am I going to pray for? And there it kept on coming up. Pray for your enemies, pray for your enemies. And so pray out of the Scriptures. But what I did there was a right thing to do. Uh, Last year, was it last year, Christchurch had an earthquake? I invited the the, uh, New Zealand uh, um, High Commissioner etc and the state government leaders and the federal government leaders come to the cathedral, let's pray for Christchurch, as several of them did. And all kinds of other people who were New Zealanders who were working in the city came in. Nobody else cared for them. Where else do you get an expression? Where else can you find somebody? We've got to lead the community to God. If you're going to lead the community to God, they need to hear the God who answers prayer. So take leadership with anybody, privately. A dear old couple across the road from me, um, Giuseppe and Giovanni, uh, Joe and Josephine, uh, we used to wave. English was not very great. Joe went to hospital with a cancer square. I hadn't seen him around. I saw Josephine and I said, well, you know, where's Joe?" And she said, oh, hospital, cancer. And I said, oh, that's dreadful. How about we pray about it? The nature of our relationship across the road changed in those minutes of prayer. Nobody else prayed with her. She believed in God, all terribly confused with old-fashioned Catholicism and all the rest of it. But now she and I were talking about God with each other. Public leadership in prayer is part of being a public minister of the gospel. So I don't care whether it's a Christian I'm dealing with or not. Uh, I meet a politician, I say, how about I pray for you on this? And I just do straight away. I've never had anybody say to me, don't pray for me. If I did, I would know that I've really got somebody who's under conviction of sin. But I've never had anyone. You say, would you like me to pray for you about that? Oh yeah, I pray for them. They hear me pray for them. They've learnt lessons about the gospel. Because I pray articulating my faith. Really powerful. is public prayer. Third year group's going to discuss that this afternoon. Here's Spurgeon. I'm going to rattle through Spurgeon's lecture to his students, chapter 4. He said, let the Lord alone be the object of our prayers. There's a longer quote here, but I won't give it. Avoid all vulgarities in prayer. Avoid superabundance of endearing words. Our prayers must never grovel. Our prayers must not demand of God. Pray when you say you're going to pray. Prayer mustn't be a matter of the heart, prayer must be appropriate. Do not let your prayer be too long. Vary the length of each prayer. Vary the topics of intercession. Keep from all attempt to work up spurious fervour. Prepare your prayer. There's a Baptist, you see, who lived in it. We've got rid of our prepared prayers and have gone into nonsense prayers, I think. Prepare your prayers. We'll prepare a sermon, prepare your prayers.